IT need, needs a framework by which they can support departments like marketing, getting the apps that marketing needs. Marketing is willing to pay for it. Marketing is willing to put in the work, how to actually run and operate this. But they have to fit within a government's framework to make sure that the company remains safe and secure. And yeah, the sort of trade-off of IT having that sort of more open framework is marketers absolutely have to adhere into that framework. Otherwise, they're just taking risks that here in 2023, you should not be taking. Hello, hello, and welcome to SaaS Me Unfiltered, the SaaS management podcast. The show with give it to you straight, real life advice from pros knee deep in SaaS every single day. SaaS management superheroes just like you. We are back for another episode of SaaS Me Unfiltered. This is the start of our third season. That's a pretty big event for us. I love that we're now entering into that third season. Really excited to have everybody here. I'm Corey Wheeler, co-founder and chief customer officer here at Zylo. Hi, everybody. I'm Meredith Albertson. I'm the chief marketing officer at Zylo. And in case you missed it, our bonus episode that we launched at the end of season two on the Zylo SaaS Management Index, I am officially joining the SaaS Me Unfiltered hosting duo with Corey. Super excited about that. And I've only been doing this a couple of shows now, but I am taking this as my full opportunity with our first guest of season three to put my fingerprints and my stamps on what SaaS Me Unfiltered is going to continue to bring to our audience. And you know, when it comes to SaaS and software, we hear consistently all the time from our customers that line of business teams like marketing are the biggest offenders of buying and spending a lot of money on technology. And trust me, I hear from our IT and our finance team all the time. And so I could not be more thrilled today to invite a guest that I feel can just shed an incredible light and perspective about marketing and technology with all of our IT and finance listeners that we have at the show. Now, I have spent a large portion of my career in B2B SaaS, and I have been a fan of our guest for years. He is a Harvard and MIT graduate, started his career as an engineer, then turned entrepreneur, founding Ion Interactive. And now he is the VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot, He's also, if that wasn't enough, the editor of chiefmartech.com and serves as the program chair of the MarTech Conference. There is no one better to provide that marketing lens to the SaaS chaos than the godfather of the MarTech landscape himself, Scott Brinker. Scott, welcome to the show. Wow. Well, thank you for that very kind intro, Meredith. Anytime someone says that godfather of MarTech thing, I'm like, yeah, that's because, you know, we want to A-B test them an offer they can't refuse. Or All right. Anyways, <laughs> great to be here with you. <laughs> that's perfect. And Scott, I shared a little bit before we started our conversation that you had a really big role in the founding of Zylo. You know, the MarTech landscape really was one of the first illustrations that showed some of the proliferation of SaaS in the marketing space. And as we began the company, that was kind of a, a graphic that we used to early on identify and relate to folks as we started to talk about SaaS Brawl. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, I was really happy to hear that. I mean, that's also, frankly, how I got the job I have at uh, HubSpot too, is I feel as that landscape started growing, like the reaction of a number of the incumbents in the space was like fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Like, oh my goodness, this is terrible stuff. Stay away, stay away. But it felt at the same time, there was like a new generation of companies that were like, okay, well, 
yes, this is complicated. This is a mess, but can we find a way to harness this? In the case of HubSpot, you know, really trying to become more of an open platform to work with all these different tools. But yeah, with Xylo here as a SaaS management platform, you're saying, okay, if you're going to have a stack that's going to have a lot of tools in here, make sure that you're able to manage and govern it well. That's fantastic. And so maybe for some of our listeners that are new to the MarTech landscape, can you give us a brief overview of what it is? And I think you just came out with the 2023 landscape as well. Yeah, it keeps growing as our <laughs> latest one uh, now shows. Boy, it started really humbly. 2011, we published a version that had, at the time, around 150 different marketing technology tools. The whole point of it originally was, you know, marketing was going through this transition of just not having a lot of tech savvy within the department. Like CMOs, it was just sort of a foreign concept to them. But at the same time, you started to see that like more and more of the outcomes that marketers were responsible for were dependent on the tool set that they were using. And so I, uh, I created the first version of that landscape, not because I had a fetish with logos of SaaS companies, <laughs> but because I was trying to persuade CMOs to think like, look at all the tech you're starting to become dependent on. You might want to be investing in some of the people resources to be able to manage this well. What I could have not expected, well, I'm sure nobody expected, was, you know, year over year, that landscape went from a couple hundred to a couple thousand to like now well over 10,000. And it is an attempt, an increasingly a failing attempt, <laughs> to catalog the range of all the different apps that marketers have access to in the different work they do. Yeah, and it's a great visualization of of marketing. It's something that inspires us. And I think probably everybody has seen an application landscape similar to the MarTech landscape over the last several years. And it's proliferated into every single function and with the organizations and practice area. So you've got this visualization of overlap at a micro level. At Xylo here, we think about it at, at the macro level, which becomes unmanageable completely once you start moving outside of marketing. So to kind of give that introduction to the episode, you had already explained MarTech has very much exploded in the market. You mentioned over 10,000 tools and counting today. You know, marketing and to a, a greater extent, sales, you know, a lot of times when we talk about line of business apps, there's a few different types of apps in most organizations. The big enterprise apps, the smaller individual expensed applications, and then the remainder sits in the line of business. Sales and marketing being huge proponents of automation and digitization and advancing what they're doing, but it makes up a significant portion of your overall SaaS spend. So now that we are late 22 into 23, we're in the era of responsible growth. And this area is under more and more scrutiny. It experiences budget cuts. Marketing always has a, a very large budget line item, as we all know. So what we're going to cover in this episode is what that means for marketers who are trying to be better stewards of their own tech stacks, their own budgets, and really ultimately helping them drive toward their goal of driving more revenue. And then we're also going to then spin that and talk about you know a lot of the personas that are managing software on an aggregate level, IT, procurement, finance, software asset management, help them understand the thoughts of the marketer and what are they thinking about their tech stack? How can they help them? And what's the impact on buying, managing, and optimizing all of that? So we're super excited to dive in. 
Scott, so I wanted to pull up actually a HubSpot report. You guys recently published a report, the 2023 Marketing Strategy and Trends Report. It's absolutely fantastic. If our listeners have not downloaded it, definitely highly recommend it. There was a stat in there that really spoke to my heart. 78% of marketers say that marketing has changed more in the last three years than the last 50. You know, we hit the global pandemic. For marketers, that meant no events, no in-person events. I personally, when COVID hit, was transitioning in 45 days an in-person event to a virtual experience. Sales isn't doing their in-office meetings anymore. They're not jumping on planes. Companies are trying to figure out how do we work remotely? How do we bring hybrid into our culture? Any playbook that marketing had thrown out the window doesn't exist. You know, there's no rules or regulations to this. We were all doing everything and anything that we could to grow the business to grow revenue, uh, to keep the business moving forward. Now it's economic uncertainty. Now we've seen you know, the softening of the economy. And we're seeing companies shift from this, you know, the past three years of this growth at all costs mentality into what I think what we're calling the era of responsible business growth, accomplish more with less mentality. How have you seen the shift to smart business growth in the marketing realm? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's funny, you know, this like, yeah, changing more in the, you know, past few years than it has in like 50 years. Everyone in marketing feels that. And that was even like pre-pandemic. I mean, pandemic like put it in hyperdrive, but even before then, but it was always hard to quantify. And I actually find that to be maybe one of the things about the MarTech landscape is that growth over a decade was we can quantify it. It was a growth of 6,631%. And all I would simply suggest is that growth rate is perhaps an artifact that is a shadow thrown, a reflection of just how significant all the different changes have been, you know, throughout marketing. And then of course, yeah, the pandemic hit and yeah, uh, again, all on hyperdrive. I think what's challenging for marketing is they are being... I suppose the negative thing here would be like between a rock and a hard place. They have, they have two masters they're trying to serve. One master is exactly what you're talking about, like the efficiency. You know, the whole shift of marketing into the digital age had very much like brought this idea of performance marketing to the forefront of how marketers run their department, certainly how they're held accountable for their department by senior leadership. But at the same time, you know, marketing is in the business of trying to differentiate from competitors. It's trying to break through an incredibly noisy market. It's constantly like, you know, where are our customers or consumers like shifting and customers and consumers are continually shifting in their expectations and their channels. And so marketers have to chase that. And frankly, a lot of the marketing technology, the reason why marketing technology keeps renewing with so many startups in the space is because these changes of how customers expect to be engaged with or what marketers have to do to reach them where they live is continuing to evolving. And so when marketers are trying to like, you know, do this high wire act of like, okay, yes, let's standardize, let's simplify, let's like, you know, make this as operationally efficient as possible. And, oh, yeah, I guess we have to be experimenting with this thing and we might have to swap out this with this other thing. That's a really tough balancing act. And my hat's off to every uh, yeah CMO who's uh, leading that. That's fascinating. I'd love to ask. So given that they're serving two masters and it's kind of that shift and you've got to preserve some 
bandwidth and resourcing to innovate, but you've also got to, to really tighten things up as you're moving along. So how does that change how apps are now being evaluated, how they're being positioned by sales, uh, sales reps, how they're being presented? You know, this shift, does that change for the marketer all of the evaluation and buying process as well? I think so. And boy, I got it like, again, hats off to you for the, uh, you know, SAS uh, index that uh, you published. So valuable to like see this data because I mean, you know this, of course, but anytime you ask people just like, oh, how many apps do you have? I mean, like nobody has any clue. They you don't actually know, have yes. to connect it. And you're like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. And one of the pieces of data I saw in your most recent report was year over year, actually, total number of average apps has actually shrunk a bit. So mm -hmm. kudos to you for like, yeah, helping companies, you know, get more efficient with that. But at the same time, you see the like number of new apps that companies are onboarding each month is actually still quite high. And so you tell me if I'm uh, misrepresenting here, but to mm -hmm. me, that sort no. of is like, okay, there's a churn that's happening here yep. and it's okay to experiment with new apps as long as we make sure we're sort of cleaning up behind us the things that we're not actually using anymore. And so it's interesting. I think this is what always gets people nervous is like when you talk to them about MarTech and people start thinking about big things like, oh my goodness, my CRM, my marketing automation platform, surely you'd have to be insane to be swapping that out every six months. And you would be, right? That is not the sort of stuff that people swap out very frequently. But it's like, if you look at almost this piece layering of, you know, there's these enterprise-wide apps, yep. there's like the for departmental level, you know, like systems of record apps. But you start to go higher up here and you get more and more of these like really specialized apps, even apps that maybe only work for a particular individual or a small team. I mean, for instance, like we're recording this podcast. I'm not sure what tools you, you know, use here, but, you know, people can be using things like Descript or StreamYard. And there's now all these generative AI things to take the podcast and turn it into, you know, bite-sized little bit. And these are great tools, but yeah, I mean, the, the valuation process that one goes through of right. trying something like that is just a qualitatively different experience than like, okay, we're not happy with our current marketing automation platform. We want to go through a review and analysis process to replace that. And what is that migration going to be looking like? And so I just sort of think the entire, from the buyer's side, like that sort of evaluation, procurement, adoption cycle is just very different on ends of those spectrums and vice versa then for the sellers of these apps, you know, like the way they have to engage and support those buyers is pretty different too. Do you think there's a little bit of a shift towards, and I'm going to use this term and uh, it's not, not specifically related to cash, but is there more of a focus on ROI and measurement that justify the investment? Yes. The thing that Boy, I've wrestled with this forever because, you know, again, marketers have been caught between these two masters. Yeah. Very much, you know, focused on answering the question of attribution in like actual yeah. marketing spend, which is a wonderful thing. Of course, anyone who actually does this knows it is painful, a bit of a black art. Yeah. It is really hard to get perfect attribution for a whole bunch of philosophical reasons. Like we don't have perfect data. But I would argue when we think about tool investment, it's even harder because well, I should say this. There are some tools that you can see a direct line of sight to ROI, where if it's something sure. like, OK, we're running a series of events, we expect this to you know, do a certain amount of you know, demand generation for us. 
here's the performance we're getting working with one particular tool. We're going to adopt to a different tool that gives us better ways of doing this. We expect mm -hmm. to see a lift in what's happening through that. I mean, there are definitely things you can do where your tool's like, oh, yeah, I get that. Yep. But then you've got other tools that are these sort of deeper capabilities. I don't know. A great example would be something like project management. Like, mm -hmm. okay, well, marketers need project management, you know, and they need a good way to organize all the different things they're doing. Trying to track that back to a specific ROI, that's hard. And yeah. I think if you say like, oh, well, we're not going to buy any tools unless if there's like this really clear ROI path for it, I think you miss out on some of this sort of deeper productivity capability that's just important to businesses. Yeah. Well, let me flip that then. So as you're evaluating a purchase, maybe you're tying it to ROI, maybe you're trying to tie it to metrics or time or something like that, a little bit more to pass muster as you're looking to make the purchase. But are you also looking at taking all the variable products and combining them and going forward with product suites? The old ERP back in the 90s process, you know, get everything onto one system. Do you see marketers going in that direction? Certainly not that aggressively, but moving to product suites or still varying up the tooling to meet the specific needs that they have? Yeah, so my opinion on this, and I'm biased, as you noted, uh, hmm, uh, VP of Platform Ecosystem at HubSpot, <laughs> is I feel like the old narrative in MarTech in the past decade was basically sweet versus best of brain. Like you sure. either get all the tools from one vendor in the box, which is great because in theory, they all work well together. The downside being like, well, you're kind of constrained on what's in that box. You're kind of like at then the mercy of how that uh, sweet vendor wants to evolve those things over time versus best of breed. Hey, it's awesome. We can pick any of the favorite tools we love, but huh, how do we actually get these things to like work together? Hmm, all right, that's hard. And when you think about it, both ends of that spectrum kind of suck for different reasons, you know, but they really put marketers in a bad constraint. Mm -hmm. I think the industry is trying now to move to this true thought of open platforms where you want to pick a major platform. I'll wave the flag for HubSpot is, you know, one of the options there. I like it. You know, that does a lot out of the box. Like you get a lot of the capabilities that you need. There is a very much a universal set of things that we've come to rely on, but that it's all open and there's no constraints on other vendors being able to integrate or leverage the APIs. I think you're seeing the industry move away from these models where people have to behind the scenes pay large sums of money in order yeah. to get access. It's like, no, listen, people want this stuff. They want your core platform. They want an organizing principle, a center of gravity to their stack, but they want the ability to like swap in like, hey, we think this other product does this piece of what you do better. So we want to use that. We love you for everything else, but we want to use this. Or there's this new emerging technology that your team isn't yet even looking at, but it's really important to us in our industry. And so we want to be able to move on that. And so I don't know. I mean, again, biased, but I feel like sweet versus best of breed really does need to give way to platform ecosystems. If you're not unlocking the full value of your SaaS, what are you doing? There is no denying it. SaaS is mission critical to your company's growth and success. And as the number two operating expense for most organizations, it's your biggest opportunity to save money and drive efficiency. The time is now to do something about it. Join me and your fellow IT, SAM, finance, and procurement leaders at SASME. SASME is the industry's only dedicated SaaS management event where you can sharpen your skills, 
hear from your peers, and learn how to unlock value and responsible business growth through smarter SaaS management. Register today at sasme.com. That's S-A-A-S-M-E.com. So Scott, I've always loved the concept of, of best of breed in the sense that, or at least, you know, a core foundational platform with almost like a a best in breed coding on the outside of, and I think is so many of these platforms and technologies improve their integrations. It makes that more feasible to have sort of that, that core center and then being able to, as your point, you just pointed out to be able to pick those solutions that kind of do that one thing better than the other, or that tool you're really attached to. I love, you know, the ability for a company to be able to choose, you know, the price point or the the technology or the feature set that's going to work best for them. But Having been here at Xylo for about 14, 15 months now, I've seen the other side of it and witnessing SaaS chaos and how best in breed can really snowball and really become that, that chaotic environment for a company. And, you know, in our recent SaaS management index report, you know, we're seeing the average companies adding six new applications every 30 days. You know, that's 72 new applications on average a year. So how can a company embrace a best of breed approach, get that technology that they really want, but work with the company and, and the, their partners in IT and finance to keep that under control. I've actually been thinking a lot about that stat from yours. I think there's two interpretations I have of it. One, which is, I think the primary case you're making here is like, yeah, these things that become like duplicative, that basically it's creating negative utilization trends with the stuff you already have, the stuff you get. Yeah, like you want to push back on that. I would argue actually, again, like a platform ecosystem is a little bit different than what we, the old school best of breed was. The old school best of breed was almost like, yeah, okay, you need that tool for that, go do that. And it, it's often it's silo. And there were so many problems with these silos. Part of it was, yeah, they just weren't sharing data, you know, like workflows across things were a total mess. But also by the very nature of being in different silos, it wasn't unusual then for multiple silos to pop up in the same thing. And that's, yeah, it just compounds the problem on so many levels, financial being just one of many. But to me, the whole point of doing like a platform ecosystem is to say, no, 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 all right. For our different primary functions, we do really want one center of gravity. And part of the governance we're gonna put in place is when we're adding new technologies into this, they have to integrate with that mm -hmm. core system. And part of that then becomes like, we're not allowing these silos to get created. Now, this works when you're thinking of it from like a line of business, you know, departmental like type systems. The other side of this of, yeah, people adding like so many apps a month. I mean, you're also tracking, yeah, things that individuals buy and, you know, expense. And I found it really fascinating in your most recent index here that the, amount of spend on those apps was relatively small. It's like 6%, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. But the total number of apps was like massive. It was like over a third. It was like 37%. Yeah. Keep me honest on these figures. Yep. But this is how much your index meant to me. I've like <laughs> yeah. burned it into my memory. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating because that's sort of saying like, okay, actually we're not talking a lot of money here, but you've got a lot of individuals who are playing around with different things. And my read on it was there's some things they probably shouldn't be doing. Like, for instance, mm -hmm. we talked project management earlier. Like, if you have a million project management tools, you know, proliferating about your company, 
I'm no project management expert, but I'm thinking this makes cross collaboration on projects yep. a little bit like the Tower of Babel. But then if you have other things like, you know, again, we've talked about Descript, there's now this explosion of all these like generative AI tools that are really small niche purpose specific tools in a lot of cases. Having individuals like, you know, get some of these and play around with them and, oh, how could this accelerate my particular workflow or this particular thing we're doing? I'm not sure that's a bad thing. Like, I actually think that sort of like creative experimentation with those apps on the edge of the organization might actually be a net positive. Yeah, this is fascinating. And you mentioned governance. Governance is a, a gross word that everybody hates and you don't want to talk about governance. But governance is a core part of now what is a distributed category and the category being software. Everybody buys across every single line of business. So you mentioned that, yeah, there should be some governance in place. And we've got a lot of different frameworks that we work on with our customers but do you view governance needs or even demand management? And demand management is, should we be buying this as a component? Do you view that as a key process across all applications? You mentioned project management and others. And by the way, every company has a lot of project management tools. <laughs> or is this kind of an individual software component with shadow IT or the individually expensed apps? Through the lens of the CIO, you know, we hear that sprawl like that, even at the individual level, there's security concerns, and then there's efficiency, employee efficiency concerns, and you nailed it with project management. So do you, do you view this as a large governance effort, or is it more targeted in specific segments? Yeah. Okay. So in fact, I wrote a post when your uh, report came out here that I'm trying to wrestle through this myself too, of having like a, hopefully a coherent opinion on it. But it's almost like when we look at individual apps, First of all, no disagreement that from a compliance, privacy, security perspective, no one should adopt an app without IT security, like having visibility into yeah. this. And if they have a whitelist of things like these are OK, these are not OK. If it's a new one you haven't used, you have to let us know about it so we can check it out. I'm 100 percent. That's like a totally qualitatively different issue. You do not want to be going rogue with the software that way. I think the question of efficiency, that's where I'm like, well, that that depends. Yes, a million project management tools, probably not efficient from the perspective of the moment you start wanting multiple people collaborating through these things, right. yeah, it becomes a mess. But when I start to like look at things like, I don't know, I mean, pick something like ChatGPT and like getting a subscription, like, I'm not sure if someone's using ChatGPT and someone else is, yeah, maybe gets access into Google Bard, which, all right, I guess that isn't charged at the moment. But, you know, whatever these things are. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. And so I was trying to think of this framework where what you care about is the net like performance, productivity, and profit of the company. And the heuristic is almost like if an individual is going to adopt an app, on the whole, does that contribute more to the overall productivity, performance, and profitability of the company, or does it detract from it? Yeah. And I think, again, if it's something where actually the individual is just using it for their specific workflow and it actually increases their productivity and their performance, yeah, it's probably a net win. If it's something that like, oh, well, you're winning on this side because this person likes this app, but you're losing on this other side because the data isn't like matching up with what their uh, colleagues are using over here. That's like, well, that's actually probably a net drag. And so like wherever that line is, that's either the thumbs up or thumbs down. But that's probably easier said than done. Agreed. 
Scott, I think it's safe to say after what we've talked about so far, MarTech has exploded. And, you know, just we were chatting briefly before we started today's show about what that 2011 first MarTech landscape looked like versus what it looks like today in 2023 and just how insane it is, the number of technologies that are in the MarTech landscape. It's a huge opportunity to optimize and maximize investments for a company. And I think certainly a solution to manage all these tools is is critical. And in fact, you wrote an article recently on chiefmartech.com that we'll actually link in the show notes for our listeners. It was called, How Big Is Your Tech Stack Really? And it was a reaction to the the Xylo SaaS Management Index. It's a fantastic article, by the way. And in it, you said that you think every company should have a SaaS management platform. Now, we promise our listeners, we haven't paid you. We're not sponsors. This isn't an under the table bribe going on, but that was a powerful statement. And, you know, coming from you, Scott, I think our listeners would love to learn your perspective. And why do you think that? Yeah. And by the way, I mean, if you want to sponsor any of my events for this site, please feel free to get in contact with me. But yes, no, I make this claim uh, free and I don't make this claim about a lot of software, but Deep on my blog over the past couple of years is some other articles where I feel like this explosion of software that's happening throughout tech stacks, you kind of have two games you can try and play. There's the game that we've been trying to play for the past decade or two of consolidation. Like, oh no, okay, all these apps, we just need to get rid of this stuff, compress it down into one or two master apps, one ring app to rule them all. <laughs> we've been trying that strategy for a couple decades now, and I don't know, scoreboard doesn't seem like that's working too well. So there's a flip side to this of instead of consolidation, thinking about aggregation, this idea of like, okay, listen, we're going to have a proliferation of things, but what we really need are some software tools that help us manage, aggregate, whether it's like, I mean, a great example of this would be like cloud data warehouses. They're not trying to consolidate down data sources and data applications using stuff. They're trying to say, listen, you have a ton of data sources that you need to feed into this warehouse, and then you have a ton of apps that you're going to want to feed that stuff into. Wouldn't a great cloud data warehouse make your life a lot easier? As a matter of fact, it would. And you can go up the stack and you see the same thing with like workflow, like these workflow automation tools that are designed to say, listen, you can have a billion apps here, a billion different things you want to do. That's not going away. Wouldn't it be great to have a tool that lets you orchestrate, you know, workflows across all these things? And you're like, oh, yeah, actually not a bad idea. And I think if you go all the way up to the stack, you get to a governance layer where it's like, Mm -hmm. listen, our finance and IT and security people, they really would be happier if we could boil everything down to five apps. That just isn't happening. So what can be tools we can use to aggregate the governance? And I think SaaS management platforms like Xylo do an amazing job on like a whole bunch of varieties of time. I mean, there are other tools there too, you know, something like Okta for like single sign-on management. Again, like what is the value of something like Okta? Well, the more apps that you need a common, you know, identity and, you know, single sign-on mechanism for, you could argue the more value you get out of a tool like Okta. And so I don't know. This is why I feel like, yeah, SaaS management tools basically flip the narrative. And it's like, listen, you're not trying to bring the world back to the day where it's, you know, just Microsoft Office and that's it. It's like we're going to live in a world of like, you know, very rich and ever changing tech stacks. And so now what you need is you need a solution that's going to make that manageable for you, governable for you. Yeah. Fascinating. Because when we talk to our customers today, Scott, similar to a CMO, 
who is looking to sometimes be able to articulate the ROI of the work that they're doing. That's the golden goose that they're always chasing. CIOs want to measure the value of these applications internally. And I think that's part of what you were getting at, adoption of products, enabling their users, providing a better employee experience. And once you've got that visibility, then the CIO, CFO are able to start to map that value story and implement change to increase value to these you know, expensive solutions that are driving outsized returns for their business. So do you kind of view it that way, that if you've brought everything together, everybody needs a SaaS management tool, that it's not about cutting and cut, cut, cut. It's also, and probably more so, about getting more value and creating that visibility around the apps that you have. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, again, it would be like the same thing like a cloud data warehouse. You know, the analogy would be, like if you really do just dump data in there and you have like no like sort of, you know, meta structure that you're, I mean, like you've got the tool, but you're not really getting the value out of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, yeah, if you just hook up like a SaaS management platform and then you're like, hey, listen, here's a number of how many apps, isn't that cool, right? It's like actually using this to say, no, no, let's like optimize how we're using this stuff. Like, let's get more value out of that stuff. Yeah, I think it's great. I think you're in a very safe position that, you could argue if you were remarkably good at your job and you could like help companies like consolidate everything down to one app, it would actually put you guys out of business. But you know, <laughs> right. I think exactly. you're walking a pretty good balancing line of like, listen, you're going to have a rich tech stack, yeah. but there's no reason why you shouldn't have an efficient and effective rich tech stack. Agreed. I love that. Efficient and rich tech stack. I guess I'm becoming your like spokesperson. <laughs> Here we go. Come on. I know we're gonna. I'm gonna have to get the contract ready after we finish up today. We're gonna put you on billboards next. Keep publishing your index. I am. Uh, yeah, it's such a valuable resource to the industry. Well, thank you so much for that, Scott. Now, so uh, Corey just a minute ago said cut, 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 which I think is a great you know transition into what my next question was is. All companies are trying to save money and drive efficiency. It's the headlines right now. It's what we're all taking webinars on and talking to our different resources about. How do we do a better job of that? I have seen this firsthand. This is, and Scott, I'm sure you've been hearing a lot about this too. And we're, we're hearing this in the marketing community. Marketing program spend and marketing headcount is often one of the first places that we uh, companies go to to make cuts. Those are big program spends. Let's go cut marketing. And it's a big conversation. It's weighing heavily on a lot of marketing leaders right now because it's still deliver more, deliver more pipeline, help grow the company, but do it with less. I'd love to know if you have thoughts or advice on what are other ways that companies can look to reduce that cost without immediately going in and slashing the marketing budget or slashing the marketing program spend. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. This is, in theory, if you've put in place the right technology and the right data, hopefully like you're getting the analytical insight to help feed that decision. Because yeah, marketing is a portfolio of many, many different things we do as best as we can. We try and like, you know, attribute ROI to those things. And it's always a range of old standbys. We know that just work consistently, things are running that a little bit more experimental. And so when you enter into a budget crunch, yeah, you, I don't know that there's a magic bullet here. It's almost like you have to look at that portfolio and stack rank it and say, yep, these are the things we really can't live without now. They're worth it. These interesting, fun stuff, we should come back to this. But yeah, we'll do it when the sun is shining again. That's never easy. But I think, you know, it's really interesting times right now on 
this performance question because we are entering a place here where some of these generative AI technologies have the potential to actually change quite significantly the ratio between where we've been investing like in human resources and what yeah. we can get out of the technology. I'm not a doom and gloom person on this. I actually think for the very reason of like what you guys know so well, the the orchestration of things is where all the magic happens. The individual tasks have value, but it's the orchestration where, you know, companies live and the AI isn't solving that for us anytime soon. But when you do look at individual, like, you know, program execution, content marketing is like probably the biggest example. There's just some of these things where it's very clear that this current generation of generative AI tools is going to change the ratio of technology to people and how we do things. And so it'll just be interesting to like see, particularly in this environment where that change is happening and how marketers start to rebalance that portfolio between tech investment and people investment. Tech investment, people investment, and other important investments. And we've seen, you know, in 2022, we saw the economy soften, but lead gen tools, that very much continued to accelerate. And that still feels like a growth at all costs approach. But does the increased spending in the apps that you've stack ranked that matter in the moment, does that leave you enough money left over, enough investment, enough capital resourcing for your critical marketing programs like digital ads and podcasts and events and things like that? Do you feel like there's a trade-off that has to happen right now? You're trading off across the whole portfolio. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to that. Again, if anything, it comes back to like kudos to those marketers who invested in getting the right data mechanisms in place to have the analytics to have, yeah, like actually an informed opinion of yeah. where they should or shouldn't make those cuts. Doesn't make it any easier, but at sure. least, yeah, you've got some data to, uh, you know, drive that decision. Okay. Very interestingly enough, we are now seeing to this point of cuts and, you know, where do you invest? We are seeing a contraction in our customer tech stacks. And you mentioned that at the outset as well. In 2023, the average organization had 291 applications, the average, and spent about $50 million on software as a service compared to 323 and 60 million the year before. Pretty large drop there. You know, this shows that organizations that are prioritizing SaaS management can definitely streamline their portfolio and utility and cut back on spend, but there's still a ton of waste on licensing, underutilized licensing. I was astonished, even as a co-founder of a company looking to address this, that the numbers that we saw from our customer base very early on and still hold true today, today that number is 44%. Over a 30-day period, 44% of the licenses inside your company today are going unused. So how do marketing leaders look at that? And how do you ensure your team is maximizing those investments that are on now the prioritized critical tools? And how do you really drive that as a marketing organization? Yeah. And again, this is one where I feel like there's, there's two sides to this. So I think there's yeah. the like sort of mainstream argument that of like, listen, if you can identify that, you know, for instance, like seats, still a very popular, uh, you know, pricing model for a lot of SaaS. Like if you can identify seats that are unused and basically remove them, why wouldn't sure. you? I yeah. think the only place where there's this like exceptions to the rule is cases where you have a set of users who are like, yeah, this is every day they're using this. You're going to see their utilization. Like anyone who's in seat has a license. Yeah. Utilization is going to be pegging the needle. 
But then very often some of these tools have folks who need to contribute or participate in a much more limited way or on a much more occasional basis. You know, like I think of a good example of something like a sales enablement tool. Hopefully if you've set it up right, your salespeople and the seats that they have for that are going to be in that pretty much every day, certainly every week. But you might have marketers who don't use it on a daily basis. But part of what they do is as part of different programs and campaigns are like, oh, yeah, we have to log in here. We have to feed the data. We have to get things set up. And then they're out and they move on to other things for a while. And so, you know, those become seats that you're like, well, OK, we're not utilizing that, you know, right. quite that way, but is it still probably worth it? And so it's like just making sure like you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater that when yes. you do the seat compression, you just really understand, hey, is there a legitimate use case for any individual to have a seat? If so, hey, if it's worth it, do it. But yeah, getting rid of the, uh, the zombie seats. Yeah, seems like, there okay, that's a nice way to go directly to the bottom line. That's great. That's actually a term we use internally, zombie applications and seats. So nicely done. Hey, zombies, you know, they're all the right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Scott, I want to switch a little bit here and talk about shadow IT. And I know that you've got some really thoughtful opinions here that I wanted to dig in a little bit. You know, when I was looking to join Zylo, I had a lot of questions about the tech stack. You know, what are the tools that Zylo was using? I think naturally a lot of marketing leaders are interested in that. They want to know what tools we're going to be able to use to you know empower the team. Naturally, with so much MarTech to choose from, people end up with their favorites. You know, I'm guilty of that. Sixth Sense, Casted, Metadata, Canva, some of my favorite tools. And when marketers change jobs, I think if they really, we can become very passionate about the tools that we love and we want to bring them with us, you know, maybe we can't get approval through the right channels, we go out, we put it on our credit card, we expense it, and we go. At scale, that starts to really cause some problems within the organization, and it results in a tremendous amount of tools for one team. What kind of challenges are arising for marketing teams around what I can see really as developing an inefficient tech stack? Yeah. Oh, this is a fun question. Part of the reason I have an allergic reaction to the phrase shadow IT is because it goes back over the past 10, 15 years where essentially IT had no interest in really advancing the state of you know digital marketing at the pace digital marketers did. And this is the whole thing that created the MarTech stack is marketers just weren't being served by the IT org and they, they had to build their own to otherwise they're just going to do their job. This created a lot of turmoil. And so it was very often like, oh, well, the marketing department, that's, that's shadow IT. And I always felt like there was the opposite side of that. Have you considered the possibility of shadow marketing? That basically when IT makes decisions about limiting what marketing can do or limiting how customer experience is going to work, they're actually affecting the brand of the business. They're affecting the efficiency of the marketing organization. Mm -hmm. That's shadow marketing. Yeah. Uh, anyways, all right. So that, that argument, as you imagine, probably didn't fly very well with most CIOs. And I'm sure <laughs> the CIOs listening now are like, yeah, shut up, Ranker. But I think we've gotten to a place where like, I mean, it shows in your report, this idea of having departments take responsibility for like the apps that are really specific to their organization, but to do it in a way that's very visible to IT, it's yeah. going through like the proper compliance and security reviews. Like that's right. And I think we've gotten to a place where now people don't consider that shadow IT. What seems like if there is a legitimate shadow IT, it's what you were saying here of like, oh, well, if someone's trying to get an app, 
either as an individual or if they're truly a rogue, uh, you know, departmental leader, that they're saying like, no, 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 we don't want IT security. We don't want to have to worry about compliance. I'm like, well, sorry, it's 2023. You just can't do that. We see so many headlines every single week of, you know, companies, you know, getting in trouble over GDPR and other privacy mm -hmm. regulations or, you know, cybersecurity things where data has been exposed. And talk about, yeah, brand damaging things. I mean, that's just terrible. So I don't know. I kind of feel like IT need, needs a framework by yeah. which they can support departments like marketing, getting the apps that marketing needs. Marketing is willing to pay for it. Marketing is willing to put in the work, how to actually run and operate this. But they have to fit within a government's framework to make sure that the company remains safe and secure. And yeah, the sort of trade-off of IT having that sort of more open framework is marketers absolutely have to adhere into that framework. Otherwise, they're just taking risks that here in 2023, you should not be taking at this point. Yeah, there's no reason to let a, a $10 app cost you $10 million in fines. Scott, this has been amazing. I feel like I've learned a lot. I love your energy and passion. I share that in our space as well. So I, I think we're a little kindred here. But I'm very excited to jump to our last section of the show. It's a little word association and rapid fire. I'm going to throw out a word. Meredith's going to throw out a word. And I'd love your first reaction to it. It could be a word. It could be a sentence. Oh, goodness. I'm going to get myself in so much trouble here. Yes. Right? Okay. <laughs> That's what we try to entrap everyone on the show. <laughs> so are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. All right. First one, chat GPT. Red Sox. Bing. Better than Yankees? <laughs> oh, man, I'm in so much trouble. <laughs> it took a little bit for that one to come out. Uh, summer. Uh, finally. Uh, the MarTech landscape. Big. Love it. Well, Scott, man, I know Corey said it. Thank you so much for being our first guest. Season three, it's a big moment here for us on SAS Me Unfiltered. You know, the line of business perspective is critical to our IT, SAM, finance leaders. It's incredibly important that they understand this. We appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Thank you for joining. And for all of our listeners, if you'd like to read more by Scott, please go to chiefmartech.com. Again, we'll put that in the show notes for you and can read some more of his incredible content. Again, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Did you enjoy the episode? Pass it along to your friends. Subscribe to get notifications for the latest episode. Share your favorite takeaways and join the conversation on social media using hashtag SASMeUnfiltered. Unfiltered.